Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. And this week, we're continuing our sermon series through 1 Corinthians. Over the last few chapters, the Apostle Paul has been challenging popular misconceptions in Corinth regarding the body, sexuality, and marriage. And today, we're going to see what he has to say about singleness in the church. Um, Parents, once again, will be discussing a few mature themes, nothing explicit, but I'd welcome you to um, exercise discretion with the little ones. So Paul is taking great care to walk a narrow path here in chapter 7. He is simultaneously arguing against two opposing camps. On the one hand, he is facing rampant sexual immorality in Corinth and in the Corinthian church. On the other hand, he is facing Christians who say that celibacy is the only option because sex is inherently defiling. I think that's why we see Paul making so many balancing statements in this chapter, because ultimately he is wanting to affirm both marriage and singleness as godly viable options. And given the context into which he is speaking, this requires a great deal of pastoral agility. So. Strictly speaking, we will not be covering the topic of singleness today. Rather, we will be discussing what 1 Corinthians 7 contributes to the topic of singleness, recognizing that the application may be a little bit narrow. However, uh, we preached a topical sermon series about three years ago on marriage, parenting, and singleness. If you're looking for teaching with broader application, I'd, I'd point you in that direction. Before we get into the latter part of chapter 7, I want to establish a foundational principle for us today. It comes out of verses 6 to 8. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Okay, when we trace the topic of singleness throughout the Bible, a trajectory emerges. The biblical perspective on singleness develops and evolves as God's plan of redemption continues to unfold. At the beginning of the Bible, God created Adam, but Adam was alone, and so God gave him Eve. He gave him a wife. The Bible opens with a marriage. Throughout the Old Testament, the portion of the Bible written prior to Jesus, Singleness was rare and highly undesirable. Jewish tradition did not look kindly upon singleness. Marriage was both a moral duty and a religious obligation. In the New Testament, the portion of the Bible written after Jesus, singleness is presented as advantageous for service in the kingdom. In fact, singleness is viewed as a divine gift. Then, at the end of the Bible, we see that singleness is universal and marriage is universal. We will not have husbands and wives. We, the bride of Christ, will collectively have the bridegroom, Christ, our bridegroom. In a sense, we will all be single and we will all be married. Thus, here in verse 7, Paul refers to his singleness as a gift. Singleness is a foretaste of the age to come, provided 
provided that singleness is leveraged for greater devotion and service and intimacy with God. This idea was paradigm shifting, radically countercultural in the ancient world. Marriage meant economic security. It meant that you had meaning and purpose in life. It, it even meant spiritual fruitfulness. But as we've discussed in previous sermons, as Paul wrote this, the age to come was breaking into the present age, like that Venn diagram. And the church's perspective on things needed to change. The church's perspective on singleness needed to change. The church needed to view singleness as a valid, legitimate, godly option. According to Paul, there's nothing wrong with being, sing with being single. In fact, in some ways, it's preferable. Singleness is a foretaste of the age to come. But marriage is also a foretaste of the age to come, right? So why does Paul prefer singleness? We'll get to that in a bit. For now, the foundational principle is this. Singleness is a good gift from God. Singleness is a good gift from God. Point number one, the advantage of singleness. Let's jump to verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So keep in mind that, that reading 1 Corinthians is like listening to one side of a phone call. Paul is responding to a list of questions posed to him by the Christians in Corinth. And we don't have that list of questions. We are deducing what it is that they were asking. And apparently, one of those questions had to do with unmarried people. It's difficult to know exactly who Paul is addressing here, but we know that Paul is addressing people who have yet to marry. And he says, concerning the unmarried, I have no command from the Lord, I just have my pastoral opinion. Here are a few things to consider. And that means, that means we have some flexibility in applying Paul's counsel here. We cannot make blanket applications. We have to use wisdom of our own, okay? Verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. That's pretty straightforward provided we understand what Paul means by present distress. And nobody really knows, so it's actually not straightforward at all. Paul says, if, if you marry, that's fine. But due to the present crisis, it's probably better that you remain single. Many scholars think Paul is referring to a famine that was plaguing the region at this time. Others actually link that famine to the promised judgment that was falling on Israel for rejecting their Messiah. At the time of this writing, the temple in Jerusalem was near to being destroyed, just as Jesus had predicted. And we know that historically, war, famine, and persecution were on the horizon for the early church. But whatever he means, Paul's counsel here is within the context of a crisis. Paul tailors his counsel in light of a crisis. However, he appeals to our foundational principle. Singleness is a good gift from God. Singleness 
is a valid, legitimate, uh, uh, godly option. In fact, in some ways, it's preferable. How so? Well, look at that second part of verse 28. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. What are these worldly troubles? Paul may be referring specifically to the famine. Uh, marriages tend to produce more mouths to feed. But Paul returns to this idea in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Now, some of us may be uncomfortable with the way Paul talks about marriage here, but I highly doubt any married person would deny that marriage and parenthood tend to complicate life. Spouses and children tend to multiply our worldly concerns. We can admit that while also affirming that spouses and children are good gifts from the Lord. If you are married with kids, you are not cursed. You are blessed. But you've got to admit, life gets more complicated. Here in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is not attributing special status to singleness per se. Or in other words, the divine gift is not singleness per se. The divine gift is undistracted devotion to God. Paul is really just helping the Corinthians to think practically about marriage and singleness in light of the coming of the kingdom of God. Verse 35, I say this to your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul will not allow married people to view unmarried people as incomplete. Paul will not allow unmarried people to view married people as sellouts. Paul is promoting good order in the church. Paul is promoting unity by helping every person to view their calling and circumstances in light of the coming of the kingdom of God. But all of this assumes that the church is functioning like a family. Why? How so? Well, according to Paul, sexual intercourse is not a basic human necessity. And this runs counter to what our society believes about sex. Our society has a Freudian understanding of human nature, that we are fundamentally sexual beings, which means that celibate people are somehow incomplete, unfulfilled, repressed. And in this climate, true, biblical, genuine, heartfelt, platonic friendship is very difficult to achieve. But the biblical view is that we are fundamentally relational beings, not fundamentally sexual beings. So what we actually crave is intimacy and mutual pleasure. And that's what we're going to have in abundance in the new heavens and new earth. That's what we should have today in the church. So a single friendly church must necessarily be a relationally intimate church, a place where unmarried people can honestly say, I'm not lonely. 
We need to offer deep friendship, genuine affection, appropriate touch, a prevailing sense of belonging. We need to be welcoming, nurturing, loving, supportive. We all need to do our part to foster a healthy church culture wherein celibate Christians can thrive. We need to be a family. By God's grace, I think we do this well. Is there room to grow? Of course. Point number two, the difficulty of singleness. In verses eight and nine, Paul writes, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul considers it good to remain single, provided unmarried people are not burning with passion. He says something similar in verses 36 to 38. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. That doesn't mean all the engaged couples need to break up. We'll get to what it means. Okay, so, so what does it mean to burn with passion or to have passions that are strong? Paul is describing a man and a woman who are overcome with unfulfilled longing for one another. Their unconsummated love for one another is distracting them from their role and purpose as single people in the kingdom of God. Paul is not talking about people who just can't control their urges. We know that because, because every Christian is called to exercise self-control, whether married or single. Now, marriage provides a lawful outlet for acting upon sexual desire, but marriage is not a vaccine for sexual immorality. Married people still have to fight temptation and exercise self-control. Thus, if you are single and caught in sexual immorality, don't believe the lie that marriage will solve the issue of your sin. Marriage will only highlight your sin and expose more people to the consequences of your sin. So don't flirt with sin and temptation. Don't tell yourself it's temporary. Fight it now, kill it now, do not wait. Sexual intercourse will not kill the sin in your heart. The sin in your heart must be dealt with through prayer, repentance, and faith. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So pursue purity today for the glory of God. Because you're not promised a spouse and even if you do get married one day, you will still have to exercise self-control. So Paul is describing a man and a woman who are overcome with unfulfilled longing for one another. In context, that's what it means to burn with passion. However, I, I do think we must acknowledge that there are many single Christians who are distracted by sexual desire. They may not be dating at the moment, 
They may not have a particular person in mind, but they are by no means content to remain celibate. They are afflicted with unfulfilled longing, albeit not for a particular person. In that case, Paul's counsel here is still helpful. He encourages singleness as a godly, viable option for those who are content to remain celibate. Paul does not want Christians to remain celibate if they're doing so because they wrongly believe that sex within marriage is defiling. But Paul does want Christians to remain celibate if they desire to serve the Lord with greater intention and devotion. And so Paul encourages both married couples and celibate singles. And that's really important for us to see because, because today's Christian subculture does not achieve that same balance. We need to achieve that balance. We need to reclaim the beauty of singleness as taught in the Bible. Devoting one's life to the Lord as a single person is commendable, period. You're not a second-class citizen. In, in part because there's no such thing as a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. If anything, the married people in our church are going to have to come to grips with the fact that Paul prefers singleness. Married people need to wrestle with that. The covenant relationship between Christ and the church is broader and more consequential and so much more glorious than the covenant relationship between you and your spouse. Marriage is important, but even the best marriage pales in comparison for the love of God, the love that God has for the covenant family we call the church. Thus, married couples are not permitted to wall themselves off from the community as though nothing were more important than their own relationship. The book, A Severe Mercy, is about an agnostic married couple who convert to Christianity. But prior to their conversion, they, they erect what they call a shining barrier to protect their relationship and to prevent the decay of their love for one another. They formulate a plan that requires strict adherence to a set of principles. They agree always to do whatever is best for remaining in love. They say no to children because that's an experience that you cannot share evenly. They refrain from developing separate hobbies or interests, and they even agree to commit suicide upon the death of the other so that they can share even that together. Let me read a portion of a poem written by the author. We know it's love that keeps a love secure, and only by love of love can love endure. We build our altar then to love and keep the holy flame alight and never sleep. So they idolize their love for one another. They worship love itself. They wall themselves off from anything that could produce tension in their marriage, but they end up forfeiting some of life's richest treasures. And the result, according to the book, is a lifeless marriage built solely upon itself. And so healthy marriages are selfless marriages. Of course, the, the, the two spouses must be selfless with one another, 
But the two spouses in union, the marital unit, must also be selfless. Christian marriages are both inward-facing and outward-facing. They are not walled off from the community. This is a sermon on singleness, so sorry about that. Let's take a moment to apply Paul's teaching here a bit further. To the married, believe the Bible when the Bible says that single is a valid, legitimate, godly option. Stop treating single people like they have a disease. Sometimes, sometimes the advice of married, of married people breeds discontentment where there otherwise might have been contentment. So we need to be helping our single friends, our single brothers and sisters to learn contentment in the Lord. Now, married people are often pretty good at setting up their single friends. So maybe we should say this. If you are single and ready to mingle, tell your married friends. Ask for their help and counsel. They have a unique perspective on the dating process. But until then, married couples, be careful not to imply that singleness is a problem because the Bible would disagree with you. Fear is a problem. Insecurity is a problem. Irresponsibility is a problem. Singleness is not a problem. To the unmarried, some of you deeply desire to be married, and that's okay. As you probably know, I'm, I'm not going to tell you that you're going to get everything you want, but brothers and sisters, you can be satisfied. Marriage will not satisfy you. Trust me. You can be satisfied. And at this point, I, I, I want to make something explicit. We've alluded to this, but in the kingdom of God, singleness means celibacy. Single men and women are fasting sexually before the Lord, no exceptions. I do think it's helpful to think about celibacy in terms of fasting. You know, we, we all know what it's like to be very hungry. Sometimes the pain can be nearly unbearable and it's all you can think about. But fasting is different. Fasting is purposeful and intentional. It's the, it's the same hunger, but we draw strength and perseverance from the fact that we have made a commitment not to eat and for a purpose. And so un unless you're married, make that commitment. Be purposeful and intentional. When you get hungry, so to speak, confess that. Lean into com community, pray, pursue healthy forms of intimacy. The Holy Spirit will empower you to obey God's commands. Now, we all experience singleness differently. Uh, maybe you've never been married. Maybe you are newly single. Maybe you're young and single. Maybe you're a bit older. Maybe you are angry and bitter towards God, toward members of the opposite sex. Maybe you're same-sex attracted. Maybe you are settled and content in your singleness. Some of you may be afraid of marriage, afraid of losing your freedom, afraid of choosing the wrong person, afraid of missing out, afraid of being let down or rejected. 
I think most of us have been there. So feel free to confess those things to your friends and community. Talk to a married couple you respect. And they'll tell you, I think, that the truth is you will marry the wrong person. Everyone who marries, marries a sinner. There, there's no such thing as two perfectly compatible people. We live in a broken world and, and things don't always turn out the way we want them to. And so it's okay to be afraid, but you don't have to be afraid. If you let it, the perfect love of God will drive out your fear. And coincidentally, that, that perfect love of God will be your satisfaction. To the unmarried men, avoiding responsibility is not an option for Christian men. If you are content to remain single and celibate, excellent. The Bible calls that a gift. But while you may be called to singleness, you are never called to self-centeredness. You are never called to passivity. Singleness is for serving the Lord. Singleness is for serving the Lord. Liking your me time, being able to travel, establishing your career, those things are good. Those things are fine. They're just illegitimate reasons for Christian men to remain single. Because singleness is a calling. It may be a temporary calling, but it's a calling to use your freedom to serve the king and his kingdom. According to Paul, singleness has practical benefits. You are not concerned with pleasing your wife or parenting your children, but you are no less responsible for the care of others. You may not be a husband or father, but you will always be a brother and the household of God needs for you to be a good one. And so pour yourself out for others. Love others with Christ-like humility and selflessness. Treat your sisters in Christ like sisters in Christ. Take on leadership responsibility. Use your time wisely. And whether or not you get married one day, you will be a man after God's own heart. To the unmarried women, Guard your heart against bitterness toward the single men around you. The prevailing rhetoric in our society is telling young people to keep their options open, pursue personal fulfillment above all else, and maintain their freedom and availability. Under these conditions, marriage becomes one of the greatest sacrifices a young man could imagine making. It's not okay for Christian men to buy that lie, but it is a temptation nonetheless. And young men don't have many good role models in our society. America leads the industrialized world in fatherlessness. And think about the type of men we see in the news. Self-absorbed and oversexed sociopaths. Impulsive, troubled, angry, violent, distant, reclusive men, adolescent men, in some cases, men wanting to become women. God's perspective on masculinity is out of style, even to a certain degree within the church. 
And so be patient with your brothers in Christ. Be a good sister to them. You have a lot of power in this regard. When they are passive or avoiding responsibility, call them on it lovingly. When they toy with you, call them on it lovingly. Don't settle for anything less than a committed Christian man to love you sacrificially and help disciple your children. Not a perfect man. A committed Christian man to love you sacrificially and help disciple your children. In the meantime, develop your definition of womanhood from the Bible. By all means, enjoy Wonder Woman, enjoy Katniss Everdeen, but develop your definition of womanhood from the Bible. It has a lot to say about women and womanhood. Proverbs 31 describes the complete package, if you will. She is powerful, valorous, determined, diligent, hardworking, and wise. She rules her household, bringing joy and prosperity to everyone around her. She is held in honor and esteem by everyone. And these things are true of her because she is the complete woman, not because she takes on characteristics of men. That's pretty progressive, if you ask me. And so emphatically, our, our society does not have a better definition of womanhood than the Bible. It's okay to desire good things. It's okay to want to be married. Just remember, marriage and singleness are not gods. They are gifts. Marriage and singleness have to be kept in their proper place. And that's point three, the end of singleness. We're going to close by looking back at verses 29 to 31. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Some have said that Paul is talking about the end of the world here. The allegation is that Paul miscalculated the return of Christ and told everyone to stay single because the apocalypse was fast approaching. That's not what he's talking about. Paul is not marching around the ancient world with a sandwich board shouting, the end is near into a, micro, into a megaphone. All right. Rather, he is calling the Corinthians to reconsider everything in light of the gospel. Perhaps a better translation for the word short in verse 29 would be critical. The appointed time has grown critical. The time is ripe. We have a special opportunity and much is at stake. Again, the age to come has broken into the present age. And in this critical time, in the overlap between the two ages, everything about life is relativized by the work of Christ. Everything is put in its proper place. That doesn't mean everything apart from the work of Christ is unimportant. It means that nothing is more important. Because nothing in all the universe remains untouched by the work of Christ. 
because of Jesus. Everything changes. Everything is changing. Everything will change. The age to come has come. The kingdom of God has come. And all civic, family, and commercial commitments have been put in their proper place. We are to conceive of all these things under a kingdom umbrella. Beneath the overarching reality of God's grace and mercy to us in Christ. God's mission for us in the world. Paul knows that marriage is glorious. He, he says so in Ephesians. However, in light of Jesus and his kingdom, the glory of marriage is relative. Marriage is not ultimate. It's good, but it's not ultimate. Marriage is a temporal thing designed to point to an eternal thing. And if we are overly obsessed with temporal things like marriage, we are going to miss out on the full glory of the eternal. I titled point three, The End of Singleness. That's a little bit of a play on words. The word end can mean finality, but it can also mean purpose. Someday, your singleness will come to an end. Maybe, maybe you'll get married, but your true hope and deepest longing is to sit as a member of the Bride of Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You will be satisfied there. We will all be satisfied there. Until then, remember the end of your singleness, the purpose of your singleness. As you devote yourself more fully to the Lord, may the people around you know the love and humility of Christ. May your steadfast faith be an inspiration to the rest of us. May your manner of living show why Paul's preference was singleness. May your manner of living show why Paul's preference was singleness. In Matthew 19, Jesus dignifies marriage. Marriage is beautiful. Marriage is glorious. Marriage is a union forged by God himself. And in the very next breath, Jesus dignifies singleness. And remember, this, this would have been paradigm shifting. Jesus says there are some who rightly remain single for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was one of those. And so was Paul. Jesus lived a full and perfect life. He was the ideal man, and he just so happened to be single. As a single man, he was totally devoted to the kingdom of heaven. He literally laid down his life for the kingdom of heaven, for your sake, for my sake. His life was a life well lived. It was a full and complete life. It was not empty or incomplete in any way. Ultimately, his manner of living was vindicated by God through a resurrection from the dead. And so his singleness was not a problem to be fixed. His singleness was a blessing to the entire world. Singleness is hard, but it's a noble calling. Receive it with joy. Even if your singleness is temporary, receive it with joy. Whether your singleness is voluntary or involuntary, receive it with joy.
just because it's hard doesn't make it less of a gift. I know that's easy for me to say, but, but I want you to hear this from Jesus, from Paul. Singleness is a valid, legitimate, godly option, and so is marriage. But no matter your marital status, do not think to satisfy yourself with temporal things. We should all be struck, singles and marrieds alike, we should all be struck with a nearly inconsolable longing, the longing for a greater glory than anything we could possibly imagine. Because as we read in chapter 2, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So may this be a safe and welcoming community for single men and women, and may your singleness be a blessing to us all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this church family. We are imperfect. There are ways we need to grow and be sanctified and glorify you more fully, but you are here, we are your people, and we are a family. Jesus, thank you for your leadership and your example. Um, I pray that we would serve and love and live in your footsteps. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would apply these truths to our hearts. Teach us to trust you with our futures. Teach us all to live in light of the coming of the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen.